Welcome to the Bully Pulpit from the University of Southern California Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. Hey, I'm Bob Strom. I'm back again. And on behalf of the Center for the Political Future, I want to thank our audience, everybody who's participated today, before I introduce the final panel. And I want to thank Rancho Mirage Writers Festival and Jamie Cabler. It's actually a real pleasure for me to introduce Alex Michelson. He co-anchors the Fox 11 News, co-hosts the Fox 11 Special Report. He hosts and produces the political talk show The Issue Is, which airs throughout California. He's the winner of six Emmy Awards and has interviewed nearly every key political figure, including Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, Gavin Newsom. The list could go on and on. He's even interviewed me. At Annenberg, at the Annenberg School of Journalism, he was uh, first in his class, and his life has gone on to vindicate that. And he's also, as I've come to know him, a first-class human being. Alex, take it away. Bob, thank you so much. Uh, Bob Schrum, such a mensch, such an incredible person who's not only one of the most uh, talented, smartest, most experienced political minds out there, but also one of the kindest human beings. And uh, I'm so grateful for you and grateful to be a Trojan. Fight on to all the Trojans that uh, may be watching uh, as well. Um, thank you for that very kind introduction. We've got a great panel to take us home today and talk about some of the big issues you're really thinking about. Things like 2022, 2024, where do we go from here? We're going to get into the, the gossip, the good, all, all the good stuff. Is that We've saved it for the end. Uh, and so with us, uh, is Rachel Bittikoffer, uh, who is the founder and editor of The Cycle, a website that offers political analysis and commentary. She's the founder of Strike Pack and author of the unprecedented 2016 election, which looked into Hillary Clinton's loss. Mark Melman is here. Hi, Mark. Uh, he is uh, the former president of the American Association of Political Consultants, CEO of the Melman Group. He's helped guide more than 30 U.S. Senate campaigns, 10 governors, three dozen members of Congress, numerous state and local officials. I imagine a lot of really great people and probably some assholes in there. That's a lot of uh, politicians. <laughs> yeah. Also, uh, Shaniqua McClendon is here, the political director for Crooked Media, where she leads their engagement with people, the Vote Save America program, which has done so much important work to get young people interested and active and engaged in politics. Thank you for the work that you do there. She also served on Capitol Hill as a policy advisor, Senator Kay Hagan, legislative director to Congresswoman Alma Adams, and she's a 2021 Spring Fellow at the Center for the Political Future. Uh, and finally, you know him, you love him, Todd Purdom a journalist uh, who wrote for The Atlantic as a staff writer, California correspondent covering politics, senior writer at Politico, contributing editor at Vanity Fair, so many incredible profiles. He's also a spring 2021 fellow at the center. And I think most importantly and most impressively, he's married to the one and only Dee Dee Myers. That is something to be proud of. Welcome all. Thank you for being here. Thank you for doing this. And thank you to your service to USC and for the students of USC, um, many of you as well. All right. So let's begin. We'll go in, in, in alphabetical order to start because it's uh, the, the uh, 
I guess the most fair way to do this. Um, when we let's start by talking about 2022. Some of the earlier panels said there's kind of an assumption that the Republicans are going to take back the House. That's what some of the Republicans in our last panel uh, were saying. Uh, but uh, Rachel, is that is that wishful thinking? We know sometimes conventional wisdom isn't always right. How do you see the state? of the race right now for uh, 2022? Well, one of the most enduring uh, findings from political science is this midterm effect. In fact, it's only been disrupted twice in the last 40 years where the incumbent president's party gained seats or didn't get shellacked, right? Shellacking has especially become a pattern in the hyper-polarized era that we're in. So, you know, the fundamentals are definitely going to be moving against the Democrats but probably not for the reasons people would traditionally think of, which is, you know, the movement of the independent part of the electorate away. I can actually foresee a scenario where Biden is pulling pretty well amongst those pure independents, especially, and they could still lose seats in the House. I mean, you know, gerrymandering aside and, this, and, and not pick up these Senate seats if they aren't inflaming turnout on their own coalition, which would include Democrats, of course, but also those left leaning independents, which my research has shown are subject to two types of swings, the vote choice swing in the independent part of the electorate and also turnout swing. So, you know, it's definitely a tough fundamental and they really will, um, I think, set that narrative coming out of Virginia, how they do here in Virginia in 2021 and the gubernatorial race and that state trifecta that they have will kind of set the media up for a narrative. And those narratives really matter a lot. Follow up to that, Rachel, we we have... uh keep hearing about the bipartisan nature of the support for many of Joe Biden's programs, specifically the the COVID relief bill. And now he's proposing, you know, $4 trillion more in spending. Have you noticed any data when it comes to the polling that that sort of thing is helping Democratic candidates? Yeah. So not, I mean, I'm sure not in the way that Democratic, like um, the consultant class might hope it will, which would be to pull more, more people's vote choice, right? So like when we get further on and I'm running surveys, I'll be checking these policies against vote choice. And my expectation is that people who like the policies will still be indicating a Republican preference to vote, um, which is, you know, totally, um, it's always been a strong heuristic. But in our era now, partisanship is king and that dictates the vote choice for 90% of any competitive electorate, right? So um, that me- that say- said though, the Democrats are trying to, you know, and strike pack is certainly a part of this, revolutionize how they message. And, you know, you can see the credit claiming component of the White House, right? Their press shop is very focused on bringing attention to what they have done and what they're trying to do. And I think that that will play a major factor if you are winning that narrative. And and again, that that is part of that is by reaching to the Republican side of the electorate, which is going to pick up those independents and telling them, hey, your own party is standing in the way of these policies that you want, right? So a lot of it comes down to that messaging. I mean, think about the fundamentals of 2020. Republicans did not have a good narrative, and yet they did very, very well, right? So it's it's not the narrative, it's the narrative that as it's perceived and managed by the parties and their respective organizations that matters. Mark, based off of your research, where do you see the state of 2022 right now? Well, it's a great question. Uh, I will say, while I am descended from prophets, I myself was not given the gift, so I cannot be really sure about what's going to happen a year and a half from now. Uh, But the reality is, uh, Rachel's right. When you look at a lot of the fundamentals, 
it's there they favor the republicans you certainly see that in terms of the historical precedent you see that in terms of redistricting we're going to have serious redistricting this year obviously uh the republicans are going to be in control of more redistricting than democrats are so they have a chance to continue uh, their efforts to gerrymandering so those things all work uh on the republican side on the other hand there are some differences this time around so for example uh we are likely to have, I think, an extremely strong economy as we get into 2022. Um, perhaps one of the strongest we, we've had in decades, if not ever, uh, just because we're, we're first a first derivative nation. We focus not on where we are, but where we are compared to where we were before. Um, and we are going to be in a much, much better position in, 21, in 2021 and 2022 than we were in 2019 and 2020. Uh, so the reality is the economy, I think, is going to be roaring along. That's going to help Democrats. I think Joe Biden is going to be still a relatively popular president, not compared to all presidents past, but certainly he's not going to be the kind of unpopular president that has damaged the prospects of, of an incumbent party in midterms past. So I think there are some, uh, uh, some aspects of the environment that work in the Republicans' favor. I think there are also some that work in Democrats' favor. And as Rachel suggested, the truth is most of these races are really locked in at this point, uh, which is to say... Uh, the partisanship is going to determine uh, the outcome in those races. We know what that is today. We can predict it uh, with a pretty, uh, pretty great level of certainty. But there's a few of these races that are going to make all the difference, and we don't know what's going to happen in them yet. We don't know who the candidates are going to be. We don't know what kind of campaigns they're going to run. We don't know what lines they're going to be running in. All of that will make a big difference. And a follow-up to that, if you had to put a number, how many seats would you say are actual toss-ups? Well, honestly, I think it's really it's impossible to say at this point, because, again, we just don't know uh, where those district lines are going to be. So there are going to be some that are toss ups today uh, that, that, that won't be toss ups after the lines are drawn. There's some that are not toss ups today that will be after the lines are drawn. So really, uh, nobody can guess that at this point. And of course, here in California, we're losing a congressional seat. And who knows what that will mean if somebody's going to retire or if you're going to have members of Congress running against each other, like we saw with uh, Howard Berman and Brad Sherman years ago, what that will mean. And and other areas are gaining seats. So that'll shake up the map as well. Exactly. Uh, Shaniqua, to you, your thoughts. How do you see 2020 right now? Yeah. um, So I don't think conventional wisdom is going to hold as we think it will, or as it traditionally does. Um, I mean, anything can happen. I'm not predicting anything. Um, But something that is really unique about uh, 2022 is that it's coming after 2020, where the entire country got to see what the consequence of inadequate government is, and the importance that government serves when we are in a crisis like, uh, like COVID. And so Joe Biden has definitely benefited from timing, um, you know, Vaccines couldn't go out until vaccines were ready, and that happened to coincide with when he became president. Uh, but a lot of voters now are able to get a vaccine. They're able to start returning their lives back to normal a bit. And Joe Biden, um, as Rachel mentioned, they've done a really good job of, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, advertising uh, the successes that they've had so far. And so I think if uh, Senate and House Democrats can kind of um, take advantage of that and point to the fact that Republicans didn't even uh, vote for um, uh, a bill that sent a ton of money and put a ton of money into people's pockets. I think they'll be able to develop a narrative that's helpful. Now, with that said, we don't know what the maps are going to look like for the House. And so it's anyone's guess what will happen there. And I'm actually a bit pessimistic for Democrats um, because we have not only gerrymandering, is that something 
uh, Democrats have to be very, very concerned about, but just voter suppression in general. We've seen all of these laws that are coming up around the country in state legislatures, especially in states that have Republican held or led state legislatures and also uh, are run by uh, Republican governors. It's, you know, even at Crooked, we are doing our best to bring bring attention to all of these laws, but it's really hard when you have a you know, a trifecta at the state level to, to do anything to overturn those efforts. Um, and then they go through the courts. And we've seen that, um, you know, a lot of the courts uh, have been filled with conservative justices. So I'm not very optimistic about the House. We'll see what happens. Um, but something else I think is worth noting is that when Donald Trump was elected, he got a lot of people um, activated and paying attention to politics in a way that they haven't before. And I think we got to see what that looks like um, during the Georgia runoffs where there was no presidential race on the ticket. Um, you know, it was just uh, these two Senate races and, and a local race. Uh, I can't remember the exact uh, down ballot other race that was on, on the ballot, but there are so many people, voters and activists, who are not going to just stop paying attention uh, because Donald Trump is no longer president. And I think you're going to see them energized and engaged in a way you haven't before. Uh, and again, what has been said is correct. You know, our um, our politics are pretty partisan right now, so people know generally where they fall, but there's still an opportunity to pick up people on the margins. Um, and so I'm trying not to sound too partisan. Everyone knows my politics. Um, I, I think one thing that might help Democrats is um, they've started to understand that they need to persuade the people within their base to make a decision between voting and not voting. And if they actually um, start doing that and investing in those efforts, um, I think we could see something different in 2022. But are you concerned at all, though, Shaniqua, that that people may actually stop paying attention to politics? I mean, you look at cable news ratings, which is more complicated than just whether you're interested in politics or not. But we've seen like a 45, 50 percent drop off uh, in the months since Donald Trump left office, which is an indication that maybe they were just so exhausted from what he did. Maybe they need to do some better programming, but also is an indication that that some people are maybe less interested. They feel like Biden's got it. I can sort of step out of the way for a little bit. Are you concerned that those people may not be animated as much? You know, even if you're not, you know, doing cartwheels in the street to get others to come out and vote. Um, and so in this case, watching cable, cable news as much, I don't think people are going to take for granted just not voting anymore, even if they're not tuning in as much as they, they have before. And you know, I'll be honest, I don't watch the news as much and I am as plugged in as you can be because it's, it's a lot. It's especially cable news specifically. There's not a lot of information people are getting from the coverage that they provide. It's a lot of yelling back and forth. And, um, you know, it's my hope. I'm doubtful that people are seeking out this information in other places. Um, but again, I think once we get start getting closer to the election and, um, and hopefully there is a conversation about what you get with this party and what you get with that party that people will remember not paying attention in, in 2016 or not thinking it was a big deal and um, the consequences of that, uh, in my opinion, throughout the four years of Trump's um, presidency. But definitely, I think anyone from any uh, ideological background saw that in 2020 with a response to COVID. And of course, if you're not watching cable news, there's this great podcast. I don't know if you've heard of it uh, that you can uh, listen to a lot of different great podcasts from uh, the folks at Crooked Media, uh, which seem to be doing OK in terms of finding an audience. Uh, Todd Purdom, uh, you do not have a, a partisan uh, dog in this fight um, as a journalist who's been covering this forever. Um, where do you see the state of, of 2022 and what we should look for, not only in the House, but also in the Senate? 
Well, I agree with everything that's been said so far, especially my, my reluctance to be a prognosticator. I learned in my long years at the New York Times that that's just folly, and I hung up whatever cleats I might have had after 2016, so I wouldn't make a prediction. But I would say that going back to the midterm swings of 2006 and 2010, we're in a period of intense volatility in our politics that we really hadn't seen since the aftermath of World War II, when in 1946, 50, and so on, we, we, went, we swung 54, we swung back and forth. And it was a similarly fraught time in domestic and, in that case, international Cold War policy, but there was a lot of domestic dissension. So I think we just have to understand that we're in a, A, closely divided country, and a, B, a period of particular volatility as it concerns the House. All the things everyone said about redistricting and gerrymandering are all true. On the question of the Senate, I would say there are some things working in the Democrats' favor, which is that they, have, uh, they don't have to defend seats in hostile territory, by and large. And so far, the two pickup seats in Arizona and Georgia, those people have to run in short seats again in two years. Those look good. And they're big fundraising by Mark Kelly and Raphael uh, Warnock. And they, they look, you know, pretty, pretty uh, optimistic, I think, in both of those places. So that's on the plus side. Uh, I think the other thing is, uh, picking up on what Shaniqua said about voter suppression, I think there's just as much possibility that voter suppression could have a, a galvanic effect on a mobilizing turnout and redoubling uh, uh, people's effort to get out the vote in those places that matter. I mean, I think very much about the 2012 election when Republicans simply couldn't believe that after four years of, you know, constant criticism of Barack Obama, his base voters wouldn't tur- would turn out in the same kinds of numbers they did in 2008. And of course, they did. So I think that's something to watch out for for the Republicans. And then there's also this question of, overreach or excessive identification with Trump and Trumpian viewpoints. And to the degree that that could nationalize the election, I don't think Trump is still a very appealing figure in large parts of the country. Uh, we saw that the, the Democrats obviously lost seats. They didn't make the conclusive gains they'd hoped in 2020. But I still don't think Trumpism is a winning, uh, winning national message if the midterm election should get nationalized. And, and finally, coming back to Biden, he is as Mark pointed out, relatively popular, especially considering the polarized environment we live in. His policies are far more popular than his, uh, you know, his job approval ratings are. Um, yes, he'd be fighting the tide of history about the midterm curse and, and all the rest of it is totally true. But I just think we're, we're in a somewhat sui generis moment in our politics and we should be watchful but careful about assuming anything. Well, Todd, you, you brought up the what sort of our next topic was. So let's go back to you to maybe double down more on that topic, which is this question of will the congressional races be nationalized or not? I know none of you want to be prognosticators. I don't want to be a prognosticator, but maybe let's just analyze the, it, it, you know, the strategies behind whether it could be, it couldn't be, why it may try to be, who, if it is, would be benefited by that. Because I was, I was struck uh, last night, Todd, watching the, the, the president's joint address I mean, his proposals are very progressive. And even though he talks from a uh, stylistic way, sort of as a moderate, I mean, he's talking about $6 trillion in spending. Um, it, it's sort of FDR versus Reagan in a way. Which, which way do you think is government good, is government bad? And we're, we're seeing a real contrast between the two parties. Does that get played out in the congressional seats as well? Or is it more just about local issues in, in a Pacific community? No, I think it easily could. And he's planted his flag, as you say, firmly on the side of uh, traditional liberal values. 
I, I thought of the late Walter Mondale. I mean, there's almost nothing President Biden said last night that Fritz Mondale wouldn't have been comfortable proposing, although Biden didn't didn't couch it in the same kinds of stern terms necessarily. But but I think, you know, he's made the White House has made the calculation, given the historical realities you've all talked about, we've all talked about that he'd better, as my uh, Atlantic colleague and friend Ron Brownstein said in his piece today, uh, go big or go home. And, you know, in, in the words of that other great political philosopher, Aaron Sorkin, in the, in the American president, when Michael J. Fox tells the president, what good is the high approval rating if you don't take it out for a spin once in a while? I think Biden realizes that he's got a very short window to get as much done as he possibly can, and he's going to die trying. I mean, hopefully not literally, but he's going to, you know, really uh, hurt himself. <laughs> And and I think that um, and I think that's that's the bet he's made. He he's he's decided, uh, you know, to quote another political philosopher, Lin Manuel Miranda, that he's not throwing away his shot, and and this is his moment. And and so I think, to the degree that um, voters in both parties see his kind of populism as something that's helping them in their pocketbook, that's really affecting them. If we return to the world that's more normal with the vaccines and the uh, fading of the virus, if the economy is, as Mark said, humming along, uh, and and if Biden can so far avoid what you know James Carville calls the faculty lounge kind of politics of wokeism and other issues that seem to dog the Democrats in the last congressional elections, uh, I think he'll be in a, in a good shape. In, in which in which if the election were nationalized, in it could be nationalized in his favor as as the the steward of these policies that are actually popular and making a difference in real people's real lives. Anybody that accurately quotes Ron Brownstein, Aaron Sorkin, and Lin-Manuel Miranda is somebody I want to be friends with. Uh, There's a a lot of genius between the three of those people. Uh, Mark, to you, uh, do do the Republicans maybe want it to be nationalized too and, and run against the idea of this much government? Um, or are, are, do they want to focus on some of these other issues like, you know, hamburgers or whatever is the, the issue of the day? I think it's fair to say, you know, Todd, I'm sure, I think Todd, certainly Rob Schramm and Mike Murphy and I are old enough to remember uh, when Tip O'Neill was actually speaker uh, and said all politics is local. Uh, the reality was true then. One of the most dramatic changes we've seen in our politics is that it is absolutely no longer true. Today, most politics is national. And there's just no getting around that. Uh, as, uh, as Rachel said, others said, uh, partisanship uh, is, is, really holds this system pretty firmly in place, holds most voters very firmly in place. There's not a lot of uh, change that's going to happen one way or the other, Having, and it's going to be national in, in its nature. Having said that, the really interesting races, the majority makers, if you will, for both sides, are going to be races like, happens to be a client of mine, but Jared Golden in Maine, who won the most Trump district in the country that a Democrat won this year, obviously you're going against partisanship. He's able to create enough of an image for himself that separates himself from the partisan stream. He's able to make it a somewhat local race involving two individuals. Most people aren't doing that. Someone like Jared Golden did. Uh, You also have races like uh, the second district in Missouri, for example, where uh, Joe Biden and Donald Trump both got 48.2% of the vote. Can't be much closer than that. Both got 48.2%. Well, the Republican won this last time uh, in the House race. You're going to have a different Democrat running this time, maybe an open seat. But that's another race where clearly what they do at the local level, the nature of the candidates, the nature of the local issues could well, likely will decide the the outcome of that race. 
So those are the interesting ones. Those are the majority makers. But the reality is most of these races are going to be decided on the basis of national partisan tides. And Shaniqua, what do you think? Because uh, in the last election, Democrats, especially here in California, did lose a lot of close seats. Um, what do you think the party could and should do better to try to win those seats back and, and be in some of those competitive close races? Yeah, you know, I actually think um, it just kind of depends on the year if nationalization is who, who it's good for. I think last year, um, what hurt Democrats is that there was, you know, all of this, uh, everything that was being talked about um, during the election was kind of happening with no national Democratic figure. And so Republicans were able to shift the, like the squad into the place of where Joe Biden is now. And then they were the face of um, who Democrats were, be that in New York City or, you know, I'm from North Carolina. So in North Carolina, and I think that um, Republicans down ballot were able to benefit national figures like Joe Biden um, also benefited from it being a national nationalized race, but he was running for president. So that made sense. So I think what um, Democrats won, they don't even have to do anything. Joe Biden will be president. So I think having him as the face of the party helps in a lot of those uh, close districts. Um, I think the other thing, um, it's so hard, yeah, because of redistricting. Um, But that aside, um, I think that we, we Democrats need to invest more in these down ballot races. Something that was really interesting to me is that, um, you know, we heard a lot about defund the police and socialism hurting uh, down ballot candidates. And, you know, the same attacks were made against Joe Biden, but he literally just had the resources and platform to say, no, I don't believe that this is what I believe. And those attacks could not stick to him. And so we need to invest in our down ballot races. We need to have organizers going door to door, letting voters know um, Sorry for my background noise. Um, letting voters know um, how these candidates, what they stand for. Um, so often, um, especially at the state legislature level, there's just not the investment um, that is uh, needed. And there are organizations like the DLCC who's doing important work at that level, but these candidates need a lot more support. And I, for me, I always think uh, politics should be bottom up. And if we are supporting these candidates, like that helps tell the story around the country. There are a lot of different faces, and then you don't have uh, Republicans being able to make the case that the entire Democratic Party is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Right, and and let's, uh, Rachel, get into that topic a little bit more. Do you think that Republicans right now are struggling to make Joe Biden the bad guy, (laughs) and that that's why there is this effort to try to talk about Kamala Harris or Nancy Pelosi or AOC or other people? Where, where, where do you see the two parties working in terms of strategically and defining on who's the face of that party? Yeah, I mean, it's true that they're having a, a hard time personally um, attacking Biden right now while everyone is tuned out and not feeling like their partisan latent partisanship isn't getting activated, right? Because they're not getting campaign treatment and most people are not watching cable news. Um, but yeah, no, here's the thing. It is true that all politics are national now. I mean, you could find an um, uh, like an exception here and there. I mean, Jared Golden's case is one of the best in my model. So I don't know that local factors mattered as much there as we might think, right? Um, but ultimately, the reason we have nationalized politics is because of GOP campaign strategy, right? I mean, they created a strategy that nationalized down ballot races and have been benefiting from multiple cycles of running 
that way. So a lot of it's going to depend on how Democrats adapt, right? They need to lean into nationalization. They um, allow, I mean, when you have um, AOC and Bernie and Pelosi and Obama flyers going out in your state legislative races on the one side, and you're not answering to voters who don't care about state legislative politics that much with something that's um, equally nationalized. So you would want, obviously, Trump, and you'd want to tie your state officials to Trump or your members of Congress to Trump or the Republican senators. And when we look at, like, why Democrats underperformed down ballot, I mean, some of it is because they did not utilize that referendum effect all the way down. It was at the top of the ticket, but it did not get trickled down into the strategies at the bottom of the ticket. And, you know, it's it's probably the fifth cycle now that Republicans have deployed the same methodology to great effect. And uh, Democrats have not yet made that transition fully, though we're starting to see signs of life <laughs> from some of the individuals. But really, um, it's the degree to how much they lean in. You have to make the, when the other party's making everything a referendum on you, your only response is to, to make it a referendum on them and try to make their brand stinkier. <laughs> Everybody loves a stinky brand. Thank you for that <laughs> reference. Uh, and and uh, by the way, here in California, for those of, uh, people that are paying attention to the recall election, uh, certainly Team Newsom is trying to make it very much about Trump, uh, even though yes. Trump's not a part of the out ballot. And, and right now, that seems to be a successful strategy for them if you look at the polling. Um, so, Mark, uh, let's talk about uh, the big guy, Mr. Uh, President, uh, President Trump. Um, let me look towards 2024. What's his role? And if he did try to be the, the president again, if he did, in fact, run, how's he stack up against everybody else? Is he the favorite? Well, right now, you'd have to say he is the favorite on the Republican side for the nomination. Uh, of course, if we're having trouble predicting two years into the future. Predicting four years into the future is really uh, on the edge of crazy. Um, but the reality is, he is has a real grip on the Republican Party. We've seen polling data among Republicans that show that uh, given a wide range of choices, uh, over 50 percent of Republicans would vote for Trump uh, in a primary. We've seen data that more Republicans think of themselves as Trump supporters than as Republicans uh, per se, uh, given a choice between a Trump Republican, a Bush Republican, and a Reagan Republican. Uh, the plurality choose a Trump Republican. So in a whole lot of ways, we have clear evidence that Trump has a real grip on the Republican Party. Is that going to sustain itself over four years when he's not in office, when he doesn't have access to Twitter? I think it's very hard to, to know. I think uh, my guess is he's going to be reluctant to go on television. My, my guess is television is going to be reluctant to put him on. Um, he may well be four years from now, despite his best efforts and his great interest, he may be nothing more than a sideshow four years from now. Again, very hard to know at this point, but there is that possibility. Today, tremendous grip on the Republican Party. Definitely the guy to beat four years from now may not be in the same place at all. But uh, like Todd in 2016, I used to make jokes about the fact that he was not going to be the nominee. Uh, I was wrong. He was the nominee. He was the president. Um, so the reality is uh, we can't be very sure of any of these guesses. Todd, do you see anybody on the Republican side that may be able to take some of Trumpism and make it Trumpism 2.0? Well, you know, I think that really, Alex, is the question. It's what they're all scrambling to try to figure out. And, and at some level, obviously, I think Trump's essential appeal 
uh, is untransferable because Trump is unique. Uh, that isn't to say that there aren't people who, who are hoping, and they range from, you know, Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz in the Senate to Ron DeSantis in the governorship of Florida. And certainly right now you see a building narrative in which DeSantis' supporters are trying to say that he's the sort of slightly more respectable, plausible Trump who's handling of the virus, while more libertarian than most other governors has at the moment turned out okay, although it seems like there's pretty good evidence Florida may have booked some part of its books, and we'll have to wait and see what happens on that. Um, but I, I think that the, the other thing, just to piggyback on something Mark said about Trump, Trump's 2016 campaign was such a whirlwind phenom that it seems unlikely that lightning could strike twice. And if we know anything about Donald Trump is that he's undisciplined and, may I say, in some fundamental way, lazy. So I don't think he's, I don't see in him a Richard Nixon clawing his way back from the California governor's defeat in 1962 to win the presidency. I don't see him as Ronald Reagan clawing back from 1976 near miss against Jerry Ford to win the nomination four years later. He might huff and puff, but whether he can blow anybody's house down is, is really another question. And, and I just think we, we don't know enough, nearly enough, about how that would play out. But I, but I think your, your first question, I mean, there are, the woods are full of would-be Trump 2.0s, and we'll just have to see if any of them can make a convincing case. I mean, Rachel, do you think that part of his appeal to the Republican base voters, too, is that he just was, you know, a, a jerk? to people that they didn't like. And they, there was finally somebody that was willing to give the middle finger to the entire system and, you know, F the libs. And I mean, it's it, really, yeah. I mean, I think that's a huge component and, and you guys have to keep in mind that when we talk about polarization and hyperpartisanship. Like these are buzzwords in the media, but to a political scientist, these are quantifiable traits, right? And you can really see how much it impacts voter behavior at the mass level, I mean, individual level at the mass level. Uh, it trumps inelastic uh, approval rating through every crisis, right? That's not something that should happen in a healthy democracy with a healthy body politic. So because it is a measurable empirical trade that's causing behavioral, like specific behavioral output from the voter, you know, mass voter electorate, you really need to assume a couple of things. Number one, there will not be another Trump because of the celebrity and the insulting, right? If you had just the insulting without that celebrity factor, which is huge in American politics, right? and Democrats are very skeptical about the viability of celebrity candidates, but Republicans get it because they keep nominating them. John Glenn, you know, Ronald Reagan, Donald Trump, right? Um, and, um, you know, it bought him. I mean, even to the end, there is a segment of people who cast ballots for Trump who did so purely on he's a successful business celebrity guy, right? They didn't know anything else and they didn't get um, a treatment from a campaign to tell them anything different. So it, it really does um, matter a lot. And I, I do think that within that Republican base, we're not talking about your granddaddy's Republican coalition. It's a totally different coalition. It's regionally located and based in the South and not the Northeast and the West where it had liberal and moderate um, influence. It's a very ideologically conservative base. And we have never seen in human behavior um, you know, the digital environment, echo chambers, niche media, partisan media really seems to amplify like uh, extremism. So, it, you know, I think 
that you know these are things that are moving together and really sequestered at a time period for the not just america but the entire western world where power paradigm is collapsing and a new one is rising and it's very stressful on the politics Meanwhile, Shaniqua, let's talk about the Democratic side as well, because I think there were people maybe a year and a half ago who thought Joe Biden would be a one-term president no matter what, because he wasn't going to run again. But do you think, I mean, why would he not run again? I mean, where, where, where's, where's your thinking on, on that right now? And what are you hearing from the people that, that you talk with? And, and do you think that Joe Biden would be a stronger candidate than Kamala Harris in 2024? Yeah, um, I, I can't imagine unless some type of health issue arises, there's there's no political reason that Joe Biden wouldn't run for re-election. He is doing an amazing job. And, you know, yeah, during the primary, um, until he started winning, everyone was doubting his ability to get through the primary and be successful. Uh, but I think now that he's governing, he's going to be an even stronger candidate. Uh, right when, um, when Joe Biden and Kamala Harris won, I you know, was pretty certain someone's going to challenge them from the left uh, in 2024. But now that he's actually started governing, you see that the policies that he's advocating for are pretty progressive, are very progressive. You know, if you look at the American Rescue Plan and all of um, the tax credits for low-income people and families that were in there, the direct cash payments, um, unemployment benefits, enhanced unemployment benefits, he's pushing for so much. um, Things that I think a lot of people just wouldn't have expected Joe Biden to be advocating for or pushing for. Um, But as was mentioned earlier, he's still his demeanor, if if that makes sense, is still very moderate and appeals to people. They feel good about him and they don't feel like he's too far to the left. Um, But nonetheless, if if someone from the left tries to run against him, like something that is important if you're going to challenge someone is to demonstrate what are you going to do different? What are you going to do better? And I think it's going to be a really hard case for someone running from the left to make to a majority of Democratic primary voters, especially after these same voters, um, they selected Joe Biden in 2020, and now they have more proof points to, to stand behind him. Uh, as far as who would be a better candidate between uh, the president and vice president, um, you know, I'm just still very skeptical of of voters electing a woman uh, and then a woman of color at that. I could be completely wrong, uh, but something that always sticks with me from 2008, um, you know, I was, that was the first presidential election I got to, to vote in. And I ended up voting for Barack Obama in the primary, but I told myself the entire time, you know, I really believe in him. I think he's great, but Hillary Clinton's going to win, but I'm still going to give him my vote. Uh, and even I, you know, in that moment, I thought, okay, you have a black man and a white woman. Of course, the white woman will win. She has this long, on top of that, she has this long history in politics. Like, people know who she is. And Barack Obama still won. And I voted for him. I was happy. But the thing that always stuck with me is, wow, a black man beat a white woman. And so it just made me think, I don't know if, um, I, I don't know when we will elect a woman, but if uh, Kamala Harris is running, you know, and uh makes it out of a, a primary, you know, I will be there figuring out how to be helpful. Do you think as a follow to that, that Joe Biden, as an old white guy who smiles a lot, is able to pass these very progressive policies in a way that maybe a President Obama, President Warren, President Hillary Clinton, President Kamala Harris wouldn't be able to do? 
Yeah, you know, one thing that uh, white men don't ever have to be accused of is identity politics or uh, doing things that are specifically for whatever identity they hold. Um, because whatever they want to do, you know, it's for everyone. But if a woman is doing something that benefits women or if a black person is doing something that benefits black people, they are accused of singling out their favorites and, and only doing things for them. So it is much easier for someone like Joe Biden to pass these policies because he's not being accused of playing favorites, which I don't think anyone, well, I can't say anyone, but I don't think many of the people you just named would, would be trying to play favorites with people. They would be trying to help people. And when you look at the disparities that exist in our country for women, for people of color, particularly Black people, of course, uh, you know, policy that is aimed at lifting people up is going to have a disproportionate effect on the folks who need the most help. Um, but it's hard to like make that nuance of a case when you when you are part of the communities that you are trying to help. Uh, and so, yeah, older white men are definitely given the benefit of the doubt uh, in doing those kinds of things. But Todd, uh, do you think, though, that voters maybe should be concerned about somebody who, and what would he be, 82 years old running to, to be president until he's 86 years old? Uh, I mean, is, is, is that something people should be worried about? Well, look, yes, I think that we've seen the toll the presidency takes on on its incumbents dating all the way back to those remarkable pictures of Abraham Lincoln in the four years of the Civil War and how he aged. And let's remember, he was in his mid-50s during his presidency. We've seen President Obama's hair turn white during his eight years in office. So I think it's a realistic uh, concern. You know, I saw the other day a word cloud uh, graphic uh, of partisan impressions of President Biden and the overwhelming Republican impression, I wish I could remember where this was, but was cognitive impairment. Well, I don't think anybody who watched his 70 minute speech or 65 minute speech last night could think that he was cognitively impaired by my lights. He was as fresh at the end as he was at the beginning. And it was a remarkable performance in every way, I thought. So I have to agree with Janique, but that if his health uh, holds up, there's no reason he wouldn't run and there's no reason he wouldn't be the most formidable candidate the Democrats uh, could put forward. I continue to believe that he might have been uniquely the only candidate who could have won last year, considering how narrowly he did win. Um, but I think, you know, medical experts would tell you that a lot of unplanned and unhappy things can happen between, say, 82 and 86. And we see the furor here in California over someone like Senator Feinstein, whose capacities have, I think, demonstrably uh, diminished, however you want to define that, uh, in in her most recent years in office. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's a concern, but um, you can't beat somebody with nobody. And um, if, if President Biden runs again, uh, I don't see why the party would not nominate him again. I mean, as Shaniqua said, he's, uh, so he's just been the person who's exceeded expectations at every turn in these last two years, and nothing succeeds like success. Where do we go from here, uh, Mark, in terms of, of the, that, that particular race? Um, you know. If you are Joe Biden, just sort of keep going where we're at or, or, you know, what, 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 what maneuvers do you see as somebody who's trained in this that are happening in the Republican Party right now as each person tries to, you know, separate themselves from the field? And, and do you think any of those are working? Well, I think the, the first test, as we were suggesting before, for Republicans is to win the Republican nomination. Um, that's a big, big hill to climb. And that's the only thing I think they're worried about at the moment is how do they beat each other? Uh, they're not so worried about how they beat Joe Biden. That's a down the road uh, kind of phenomenon. They're worried about how they claw their way over each other. Um, and, you know, you, you're seeing efforts in that direction. It, it's honestly a little bit harder 
when they are so constrained ideologically. That is to say, there's not a lot of room for maneuver. There's, someone can't go left or center. Uh, <laughs> there, there's only the far right. That's the only place you can be. And you have to be bad from my perspective on immigration. You have to be bad from my perspective on civil rights. You have to be bad on economic issues. You have to vote with the other, all the other senators. Uh, and if you're a governor, you have to be in lockstep with those senators. So there isn't a lot of room for maneuver for these uh, folks that are considering running for president on the Republican side. I noted that Lynn Cheney the other day uh, did not rule out running for president. Um, I think she'll have a hard time. But the reality is she's the only person that's occupying a really different place. She's saying, I'm not Trump. I think Trump did a bad thing. I think he was a bad president. I think he was uh, uh, responsible for January 6th for the insurrection. Um, that is the unique and the only unique uh, uh, positioning that I'm seeing in the Republican Party right now. The rest of it is really goes back to Shaniqua's uh, identity politics issue. Um, you have people like um, uh, the former governor of South Carolina, who's able to say, I'm a woman of color. That makes her different um, from other Republicans, to be sure. But ideologically, she looks just like all those other Republicans. For a moment, for a second, she was willing to take on Trump and then gave it up. So the reality is, uh, ideologically, they're all constrained. They have slightly different personal identities um, to some extent or other, but very little room for maneuver at this point. Yeah. In fairness to them, uh, there also is Adam Kinzinger and Mitt Romney, who have both sort of staked out that space of being anti-Trump Republicans, whether either they're going to want to be president. Well, we know Mitt Romney wants to be president. Whether they will run for president is, uh, well, is another, another question. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, Rachel, I, I want to pick up on, on, an, on an issue that you know Todd uh, brought up, which is this idea of if somebody watched Joe Biden's speech for 65 minutes, then they would see that he doesn't have cognitive issues. Well, that assumes that they watch the speech, you know, and we're in this crazy media environment, which you, you mentioned a little bit, where a lot of people just tune out things that they don't want to see and just pretend like it's not happening. And then they just don't see it. Whereas 30 years ago, when there's only a few channels and it's much harder to do that. Describe, if you will, some of the changes in in media that you're seeing and how that is starting to shape the strategies you see in terms of political campaigns. Yeah, I'm happy to do that. And it's really important, especially for the students, if there are any, hopefully there are, and by the way, go Ducks, um, watching the feed, because the media environment that we have, as you just pointed out, it, it does not, it is completely fundamentally different than the, the psych, um, system that I and everyone older than me grew up in, in which we had shared information, right? So in, in terms of Biden, Last night, many Republicans, right-leaning Indies, did not watch it because they don't want to be reminded about the loss, <laughs> right, the, the actual loss of, of Biden, uh, Trump to Biden. And they'll rely instead on partisan media to tell them what happened, right? And if you go in to read Drudge Report or Breitbart or Fox News, I mean, they're not going to be kind to Biden, right? They're going to nitpick anything that they can out of the speech, out of the appearance, out of the issues, and they will define 
reality for these people. So our realities are not shared. The, uh, people are not getting subjected to information in the way that they used to. And in terms of that, right, it makes it all the more imperative that Democrats, you know, they made a few strategic blunders in the 2020 cycle, not knocking on doors in a pandemic makes sense, right? But the other side's doing it, so you need to do it. Um, but one of the other blunders is the failure to transition really into digital micro-targeting fully aggressively and strategically. Um, Scope-wise, they did spend more, and um, in some cases, you know, in terms of Biden, you know, many more on, on some of that type of, of outreach, but it's the way that it gets deployed. Um, if you're trying to reach somebody under the age of 30 now, you're not doing it on television, not on live TV, not on stream TV. You need to do it on YouTube, on Reddit, on Snapchat, and on TikTok. They don't use Twitter and they don't use Facebook. So it really is about diversification of tactics and deploying smart strategic messaging. And I can't agree with Shanika enough. When we look at modern election outcomes, it doesn't matter if it's in Michigan, Pennsylvania, Arizona, or Georgia, what's going to determine 2022, what determined 2020 is turnout of those two party coalitions. And that includes the party's base and their independent um, colleagues who vote for them all the time. So it really is about reaching your voters and defining stakes, right? And if you're not reaching a big chunk of the electorate because it's not using traditional media and you, you're not strategically micro-targeting uh, like the Latino operation that Brad Parscale deployed in digital especially, then you're really at a disadvantage. You know, as, as somebody who makes his living uh, in the TV news business, I, I just want to pretend like what you said didn't happen. So I'm going to be like those people that just ignored it. Like it's not, it's not, it's not a real, no, it is a real thing and we have to deal with it. Shaniqua, this is literally what you do. What has made you so successful and what has made Crooked so successful is reaching some of these younger people in a different way and talking to them like actual human beings and not just reading teleprompter copy at them. I mean, what have some of the most important lessons you've learned through your work at Crooked that maybe you can share with us when it comes to actually motivating young people through the way that they're consuming media now? Yeah, I mean, the first thing you have to do is meet people where they are. You know, if, if they are not watching cable news or just broadcast television in general, you can't put everything, every message that you're trying to get to them there. You also can't take what you would put on broadcast television and throw it on Facebook or, or Twitter or TikTok and think that it's going to have the same impact because they're different audiences. So what we do that um, has and you just said this, that has helped us reach so many young people is, one, we meet them where they are. They are on their phones. You can listen to podcasts on phones, uh, but you can also listen to them on a computer um, and now in other places that I don't know about. But, um, you know, we even have um, we even have Snapchat shows. So you can watch some of our shows on Snapchat, which is where we reach a lot of young people uh, and people younger than millennials. Uh, most of our audience is millennials. But the other thing that we do is um, we we break things down. We talk about things. Um, but if it's clear that a lot of people wouldn't understand us just saying maybe like, oh, they got to pass another CR. It's like, well, what's that? It's a continuing resolution. It's funding our government, explaining why that's important, but also breaking it down to how does this impact your life? You know, how does participating in our elections have a direct impact on your life? Last year, that wasn't as hard to do because COVID was right in front of us. As you saw in the Georgia runoffs, 
uh, both John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock got to say, if we are there, we can approve a bill that will send checks to you all. And that will not happen unless we are elected. Um, and then, you know, the conversation around student loan debt right now, we really just focus on, okay, here's our audience. Here's what would be important to them. Let's talk to them about it. Uh, and I think the biggest thing, I mean, the reason Crooked was started, one is our founders didn't like the way the politics were being covered. But the second half of it is so much of the conversation is about what's wrong. And no one ever says, okay, this is what's wrong, but here's how you can fix it. And that's what I really think has attracted so much of our audience because they feel empowered. And, um, you know, things have gone well for Democrats for the last two elections. And what that has shown are, or, you know, last four, if you, if you count uh, Virginia in 17 and 19. But what our, what our audience took from that was, okay, they told me if I got involved, something good could happen. Something good happened. And now they have a little bit more faith in the system. Um, and I think that was, you know, I think there's even a level of maturity you see under uh, with young people who participated. A lot of young people did not want Joe Biden to be our nominee, but they still showed up for him in November and elected him president. So um, it's just really important to meet people where they are, understand um, how and where they consume their their um, information and understand whether or not they like partisan news. You know, what do they want to hear? Do they just want to be educated? Do they want to you know, be kind of pushed in a certain direction on, on something. Um, and I, especially younger people, I don't think they're looking always to just have their beliefs confirmed. They do want to understand things. And so um, that's just really important. And also make it fun and funny sometimes too, and not just the same, you know, old school way. And I think what you said about negativity is so profound. I'm so often frustrated with the sort of natural way that most news producers think is you got to lead with something bad. You got to lead with something bad. And that's not the way that most people I think always interact in real life. And I think we need to rethink how we create newscasts on TV to make it relevant and be able to compete with that as well. But that's, I could do a whole, that's my journalism school. We're in the politics. It was a double major. So we'll say that for another, uh, another day, Todd, we, I would love to talk about that uh, with you. I'm, I'm interested for you as somebody who has made your life in, in more traditional media for years, how you're processing the changes in media right now and, and how you think that changes who ends up uh, succeeding in politics. And, and it's interesting that you have in Joe Biden, somebody who's not necessarily the most tech savvy uh, person, not the person with the most Twitter followers, not the person with the most viral moments. And yet he's still, you know, kind of dominating this moment. Well, I think I should be frank to say that, you know, when I came to coverage of national politics in my late 20s and early 30s, the grownups in the room had cut their teeth in the McCarthy campaign of 1968, the McGovern campaign of 1972. And when they'd talk about those days and how they deliberately lost certain procedural things at the Miami Convention, I'd be yada, 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 yada. Well, now I'm the yada, yada, yada. I don't understand how it works today at all. I, I'm the Wizard of Oz. I can't come back. I don't know how it works. And, you know, I, I covered the 1996 presidential election for the New York Times with no internet and no email. And I covered the Florida recount with a dial-up modem. So I, my experience is closer to candlelight and clipper ships than it is to the world we live in today. And I'm acutely conscious of that. But I think one of the strategic decisions the Biden campaign made, and Anita Dunn has said this in public, is that you know they didn't consider at the end of the day that Democratic primaries were ultimately decided by the people who were glued to Twitter. 
And, um, you know, they had some help from Jim Clyburn and they had some help from other strategic, you know, decisions that they made. But um, I, I do think there, it's important to remember there are still vast parts of the electorate that, that are not part of this new media world and, and are not uh, plugged in 24-7. That isn't to say that you, you, I'm not arguing for, you know, ignoring the realities of the world. I'm just saying that we live in a complex, multifaceted media environment and people have to pay attention to all aspects of it, just as, frankly, in the old days, campaigns had to pay attention to the air game, the air war, the TV ads, and the ground game of turnout and uh, voter identification. What's changed is there are infinitely more sophisticated and customizable tools for both of those tasks, and, um, you know, uh, and, and people know how to exploit those. So I think um, the... the, the but the thing that I think is, is, is interesting is the methodologies are, in fact, so new and so transformative that, that they're not just different in kind. They're really different in quality. There's something, to me, very different about what can happen in the digital space with personalized ads compared to having a glossy flyer arrive in your mailbox. It's not the same experience, really, in any way. And I, and I think we have to you know, understand that. And, and correct me, Rachel, if I'm wrong, but... There have been, weren't the Republicans the leaders in this realm, really, and haven't the Democrats been playing catch-up, and presumably the Democrats are getting better about it, but, but that's a challenge for both parties in the years ahead. No, you're not wrong. I mean, <laughs> and actually, you know, um, they, they came out the gate stronger in 2004 with micro-targeting and kind of news, using this new medium of the internet, and then Democrats pushed ahead with Obama, but it was very Obama campaign centric, right? And we saw that lead fall away. I mean, definitely at the sub subnational election level in 2010, in 2014, even when Obama was still there. Um, but once um, Obama was gone too, so now they're playing catch up again. And and one had thought maybe you know after 2016 they would be um, more aggressive in that realm. So I think that was for me as as a person who did an election forecast um, for 2020 in particular, it was a surprise to me how much ground they ceded in that space to the Republicans. And it will be a disaster if they don't fix it by 2022. Mark, as a, as a practitioner of this, go ahead. Yeah, I just was going to disagree for one moment because I think the reality is that's the old news. The new news is Democrats have caught up and exceeded the Republicans in many ways in using these technologies. Um, and, and that was evident uh, this, in this last cycle in particular. It was beginning to be evident even in the midterm cycle. Um, the, 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 I, to say that Republicans are ahead in, in these areas today, I think it's just honestly not correct. So how do you use these new technologies in terms of strategy when you're doing your campaigns now? I mean, what's sort of the smart way to go about it? It sounds like, based on what everybody's saying, it's a lot of all of the above, right? Yes. Well, that, that's the problem. And that's one of the reasons campaigns have become vastly more expensive, because nobody's saying, well, we've got this Internet now. We can save money on TV and not do that. Let's just do the Internet. It's both and. It's everything. It's all of the above. And so, look, there, there's a whole sophisticated process here of, of, of individual level targeting uh, for people. Obviously, some of the platforms have made it more difficult for both parties uh, in, in recent uh, year, last year or so. They're continuing to make it difficult in some respect. But the reality is there's a lot of information available about people at the individual level. That information is, is collected and organized and analyzed and communications go out 
to individuals based on that, that information through a whole wide variety of channels and in the channels themselves tune the communication uh, based on the responses they're getting. So it's a complicated process at some level, but it's pretty simple at another level. All right. And we encourage you to send in questions, uh, write questions into the Q&A section, and and I will uh, hopefully read them. Uh, The staff here is checking them out, too. I want to get to some of them. We had an anonymous question that came in about uh, the Trump family. Um, And it's, uh, if not Trump, could the panel speculate about whether, whether a member of his family might run in 2022 or 2024. I know there's some thought about Lara Trump potentially running for Senate in North Carolina. And um, who knows um, in 2024 what the legal situation will be for the Trump family. But um, do do we think, I mean, still a lot of energy behind somebody like Donald Trump, if he, Junior, if he, if he is at a, like a GOP convention, anybody think that the Trump family member is about to run and, and could have success? I'm Maybe very hopeful take... that one will run. <laughs> I so stopped nobody's... hoping that after Trump actually won the nomination and then won the presidency. <laughs> you know, I don't want to take any more gambles now on people who are just, you know, should not be running government running because you never know what the electorate will do. Right. So, um, but I think it's going to come down to who else runs. Right. I mean, if you're, if you're not Donald and you're Don Jr. And Tucker Carlson wants to run. Do you run then? I don't know, right? <laughs> not a crazy thing. I mean, it's a joke, but I mean, Tucker Carlson, no, in all honesty, Rachel, <laughs> right. would be a very formidable yeah. candidate in a GOP primary, would he not? The truth is he would dominate the field because um, it's all about name ID and celebrity. <laughs> like, uh, it's a it's a huge asset. So, you know, like with Bernie and, and Biden, you know, I got a lot of flack for saying, look, there are 20 something people running, but the only two that matter are Bernie and Biden, because that's the only people that most voters, even primary voters will ever realize. Ballot. And you could see this in data. I mean, even the morning consult tracking poll well into the Democratic cycle, you know, Beto, Beto and, um, you know, Kamala and all these other people, Pete Buttigieg, we we have like gotten to know, right? 40% of people who say they're voting in a Democratic primary, so they're already better voters than the average American, had not heard of these people who we think of at that point as household names. So, yeah. But do you think also that it matters what their image is as a celebrity? You think of Arnold Schwarzenegger, his image was, you know, Mr. Universe and the biggest movie star. He's the Terminator. You think of Donald Trump, his image, whether it was based on reality or not, was in a boardroom. He's the boss, lots of money, gold everywhere, hot wife. That's Donald Trump. You think of like Caitlyn Jenner now. You know, uh, we had uh, Carla Marnucci from Politico on recently who said, you know, you know, Bruce Jenner was known for keeping up with the Kardashians as the guy who couldn't keep up, who <laughs> just like sat in the corner. Like if somebody should run from that show, it should be Chris Jenner, who was always the boss. I mean, do you think that the image, um, uh, it's not just being a celebrity, but it's like what you are as a celebrity. Like, you know, yesterday there was speculation that Randy Quaid might run for California governor. <laughs> does, does that stick in people's minds or is it just that you're famous? I'll tell you this, there will, if Caitlyn Jenner, if the referendum survives, which I don't hope, don't think it will, if you make it a recall on the referendum or a referendum on the recall, uh, but let's say it did, let's say the voters say, yeah, let's recall Newsom. And then it becomes a, a ballot question between him and, and Caitlyn Jenner. 
there will be few Republicans, very, very few, and right-leaning independents that won't cast a ballot for her, even if it crosses over into transgender identity, because that party label is all that matters, right? So when you say to me, like, does it matter if they're temperamental or they have this background in athletics or movies? I mean, at the end of the day, what matters is that R and that D at the on the ballot that voters will see and use that heuristic. And, um, you know, in terms of the Republican celebrity brand right now, owning the libs is my expectation of what, you know, would be the biggest sell. So, you know, that celebrity for Tucker Carlson ties right into that. Of course, on the on the ballot in California, there would be a lot of Republicans that would also be up like Kevin Faulkner, John Cox, others, but they don't have the names. That Caitlyn Jenner do. And they don't have Brad Parscale and the entire Trump campaign propping them up, right? I mean, right. Republicans are always, if nothing but strategic, I mean, always strategic from day one, year one, five years, 10 years ago. So they have picked Caitlyn Jenner. They have recruited her to run and they're going to throw their lot behind one horse because they understand that in this situation, they need to push as many GOP voters to one candidate and hope that the Democratic ballot, because of progressives, you know, not liking Newsom um, could get, um, you know, split up into factions. But again, it will come down to that. Yes. Vote first. Yes or no. Yeah. And interestingly, I've talked with the head of the recall movement and the the state chair for the California GOP, and both said that they're looking at endorsing one particular candidate, that that will be the (laughs) the strategy going forward. Okay. We can do that. I'll do the whole thing on just on the recall. Maybe we do that as a separate thing. Let's go back to your questions though. And, and Mark, I'll, I'll start with you on this one. The, the shy Trump voter confounded pollsters in 2016 and 2020. Many conservatives, especially young conservatives, hesitant to share their views publicly. They've heard so much about the fears about cancer culture. Polling's getting tougher. Landlines become obsolete. Spam calls become more prevalent. Good polling remains expensive. Is polling on its way out? How should we think about polling in future elections? Well, it's a great question. It's a complicated question. But I think the reality is this, that for the most part, and I emphasize for the most part, polling is still pretty accurate. And the truth is, it's hard to forecast things. People don't always... uh, tell you that they're not always aware of their own reality. Um, But the reality is the polls are pretty good. They're not great, but they're pretty good. So polling is not on the way out. But I think what is definitely uh, required in this moment is an understanding of the limitations, what works well, what doesn't work well, how do you make changes in the way you're doing polling. For example, just to take an example, we use now multi-mode data collection. That is to say, We call people on landlines because there are still some people that use landlines. We call people on cell phones because there are people that will answer their cell phone. We also do text to online. There are people that respond to a text. So we have three different ways of collecting data. If we just talk to people who answered their cell phones, if we just talk to people who answered their landlines, if we just talk to people who responded to text, we would be getting the wrong answer. So you need to broaden your horizons. Second, you need to think about what you're trying to do in the polling. Uh, From a campaign point of view, Polling is not fundamentally about the horse race. Look, we all want to know who's ahead and who's behind. We all want to know by how much, and that can influence our strategy. But really what we're looking for is to answer some core strategic questions. What do we want to say? What's our message? Who do we want to say it to? Who are our targets? What vocabulary, what symbols do we want to use? Through what medium do we want to say it? When do we want to say it? What's our timing? Those are the kind of questions we're trying to answer through polling and through a variety of research techniques, not just polling, but other kinds of experimental designs, other kinds of techniques, we can still 
provide much better answers to those questions through scientific research than we can by people sitting on a bar stool and guessing. I'm going to try and knock out as many of these questions as I can. Question from Diane Wallace. Uh, Shaniqua, maybe I'll start with you on this. Uh, she says, 2018, 2020 saw the rise of women of change. 50 state women members, nearly a million. Indivisible, sister district, locally Generation Blue. They did significant voter outreach among the country. Do you think these organizations will continue to be strong in 2022 and 2024? Maybe without Donald Trump on, on the ballot? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, it's, it's no uh, surprise. Uh, Cryptid Media was founded after Donald Trump won. Um, so, and we worked with a lot of those organizations, organizations that um, rose up out of uh, Donald Trump's victory in 2016. But I do think they will continue to be very um, central to what Democrats are doing. Um, moving forward, point blank, a lot of organizations, ourselves in- included, took some time to really think about, okay, you know, how are we going to do this work? Donald Trump is gone. This work is still important. Trumpism is still here. So how are we going to engage in this space where people maybe are starting to drift away and not feel the threat, um, not feel that the threat is um, is as, as serious as it was before. And I think in reality, people, people still feel a bit of that threat here, at least the people that, you know, are interested in what we're doing. Um, they watch Republicans in, in the Senate, particularly Mitch McConnell, someone who for most of you know, the whole time I was on Capitol Hill, he just flew under the radar. Like we would complain about him all the time, but people generally didn't know who he was and now they do. And they see what he's willing to do um, to keep power when he has it or get it back when he doesn't. And so all of these organizations um, are helping educate people about that and understand like how they can take action. But something else that's really important that these organizations, specifically thinking about one like Sister District, they are bringing more attention to down-ballot races and um, organizations like Run for Something, making it clear that we have, you know, there are so many elections that have happened around the country where uh, Democrats have just not even uh, entered the race. They didn't even think they had a chance and didn't run, uh, which makes it pretty easy for the same people to keep showing up, keep pushing the same policies. But when we start running people and make people have to kind of earn their keep in the seats that they have, um, we push them to... uh, be better, you hope, or at least be uh, more vocal about the things that they believe. And in some instances, you win. And when you start getting more um, more progressives elected at the local level, they are now more equipped to start running um, higher and higher up the ticket. Uh, but generally, I don't think these organizations are going anywhere because if you look at Georgia, grassroots organizations were the key to um, Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff winning. And so not only have... Um, you know, they've been around and doing the work for a long time. You're now starting to see people higher up within the Democratic establishment honoring and understanding how important this work is. And Republicans have been doing it forever. I'm not sure why we, <laughs> you know, uh, it took all of this for us to, to get to this point, but they have built a very um, robust infrastructure that has the party, but also has these outside organizations and media entities that are all helping, you know, the message um, get around to the folks they needed to get around to. So I think the groups wouldn't go anywhere if they were told they needed to go somewhere. But I think the the party in general is starting to realize their value. 
All right, I'm going to ask a question from Mike Murphy because he asked a question from me during his panel. So I'm going to play back the favor and, by the way, give a great shout out. If anybody wants great politics news, Hacks on Tap is great. In addition to Pod Save America, there's lots of good podcasts to go around. Uh, Rachel, this is uh, for you. Um, he wants to know about James Carville's comments on Vox that the Democratic Party is becoming so woke they risk alienating regular voters. I mean, do you think that that is a potential risk that the Democrats overplay their hands and some of those images, things like defund the police, which even though Biden says he doesn't in favor for, end up being something that is in people's minds? Well, again, I mean, it just comes down to the GOP being so effective at exploiting weaknesses, right? And understanding that ultimately these two parties are about brands and branding and selling brands. So they have been very deft and very um, focused the last few cycles over the me- their media um, system and also their campaigns to brand the Democratic Party in poor ways. And so you, you can't, I mean, I, I was telling somebody the other day, even if you were to wave a wand and disappear AOC and Bernie Sanders and defund the police police people, which is a small, small fragment of the Democrats coalition, the Republicans would simply paint everybody as socialist anyway. So your answer to that has to be a competing narrative that sullies their brand in the same way, that points out their extremist elements and their um, unappetizing aspects of their platform. And that is a component of messaging that has not been executed yet on the left. So I think that that really is becoming so crucial. Uh, Ultimately, when the other party is running a referendum on you, if you're not responding, then yeah, it's going to become about your bad aspects, right? So you really want to be making sure that you're firing back and making each voter consider, okay, do you want fascism or socialism, right? (laughs) I mean, it really is that simple. All right. And uh, this will be the last question because uh, we're running out of time. Uh, Todd, we'll start with you. Um, this is from Allison Rentelm, who, who used to be my professor back in the day at USC. So we've got to give her a shout out as well. Fight on uh, to you, professor. Uh, how would you characterize President Biden's image now? You talked about him uh, potentially being the only one that could have won. Um, president sometimes criticized for going off script, being undisciplined as it worked to his advantage because he comes across as human. You think his speech last night shows he's more charismatic than some realize. And, and I wonder if you also, because uh, I wanted to ask you as a follow-up earlier, can expand upon why you think he may have been the only person that could have pulled it off last year. Well, I think he has a kind of calm charisma, you know? I mean, and I think in the aftermath of Trump, who knew that normal could feel so thrilling and kind of uh, peaceful? Uh, you know, it's like that old song, Peaceful Easy Feeling. I, I think Biden has shown himself in the last, 20 months to be incredibly disciplined. Uh, he got made fun of in the debates for looking at the time and stopping and saying, oh, I should stop. But, you know, as, as people have often said, Biden's been talking past the sale for the past 40 years, and he suddenly learned, like, when to stop, and he's ahead. And, and so when he has an aside now, or just as importantly, when he does a spontaneous gesture, like in the Capitol uh, Rotunda uh, lying in state for, for one of those uh, police officers who had died uh, when the uh, little girl dropped her, her toy. It was, a, it was a little squeezy of the Capitol Dome. He went and stopped his speech and picked it up for her and gave it back to her hand. It's a natural human gesture. So, um, you know, uh, t- take him for all in all, as Shakespeare said. He, he's a human being, and he's palpably, visibly, viscerally human. And I think that um, 
after four years of Trump, who, who I think even his proponents would argue that he was kind of otherworldly as a personality. He wasn't really quite, he didn't have a normal beating heart of a human being that most people think of. And, and so Biden is, whatever else may be wrong with Biden, Biden is real. I don't think anyone thinks Biden is putting on any show about anything. And so that to me has been his, his shield and his buckler. I mean, he's like, uh, he's going to, that's, that's his brand to, to, uh, you know, take off of what Rachel said and, and he's sticking with it. And, and so far, I mean, it's, uh, it's standing him in very good stead. And I think we've seen over the years with politicians on both Republican and Democrats that when people feel like you actually are being authentic, they maybe give you a little more leeway. So things that are... With Ronald Reagan, I mean, right? Ronald Reagan would call up the Jerry Lewis Labor Day Telethon to make a donation and they wouldn't believe it was really him calling. You know, we would see hard luck stories in the paper and send 100 or $200 to the person whose plight had been depicted. So, I mean, I think that, you know, Reagan's a classic example of a person who got away with a lot of pretty rough-edged policy decisions because he was seen as personally human and even humane. Uh, and, and I think Biden, Biden similarly can, it has the best chance of anybody of getting this giant program, at least some of it, passed because he's, he's he, in his person, he doesn't seem threatening. He, do, he doesn't seem like a socialist or a fascist or a radical, or he just seems like Joe. Well, I think uh, leaving on the fact that being human is good uh, is a nice way to end, unless you're a Star Trek Next Generation fan, and then being an android also can be good, because Data was a fantastic character. But uh, that's uh, more to come on Star Trek Picard. Thank you very much to, to Rachel, to Todd, to Shaniqua, to, to Mark. A big thanks to Bob Shrum and Mike Murphy for inviting all of us and their great leadership um, at USC, in addition to the, all the staff there and Erica as well for helping to coordinate all of this uh, today. Thank you all for listening. This is really fantastic. I'll give myself a shameless plug. Uh, I do a show called The Issue Is, a political show that airs every Friday night at 1030. It's the only statewide show uh, in California talking about California. California politics would love to have all of you guys on at some point. I think you're all fascinating. Um, and uh, I'm open in social media to connect with anybody listening to this too, if we want to keep these conversations going. Um, but a big thank you everybody for the time. We know how busy everybody is. And so we appreciate you taking time to make everybody smarter. I know I learned a lot. Um, and uh, I think the best thing to say as we end is fight on. <laughs> Go Doc. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you all very much. This was really, this was really uh, fantastic. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for joining us on The Bully Pulpit. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at USC P-O-L Future. That's USC P-O-L Future. Follow us on Facebook and YouTube and visit our website for upcoming programs. 